Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina, this is Trailer Talk, and I am so happy to have Gerard Ilaria join me. He is a mental health professional. This is one of two Trailer Talk episodes, so please know you can go to the other one to learn more about Gerard and this work. He is a psychotherapist. His official title is he is a licensed clinical social worker. He works with the Cornell University Weill Medical Center, and I'm very happy to have an expanded conversation with Gerard about his mission as a mental healthcare professional, as a psychotherapist. And that is a mission that is to lift up and raise awareness in the LGBTQ plus community that builds on a lifetime of his work with trauma, with PTSD. And we're going to anchor this conversation in his personal story and history. I don't think we can separate who we are from what we do and why we do it. And I'm excited to discover more about this technique of EMDR, and we're going to learn what that is, but also why it's so important in the LGBTQI plus community. And certainly we, we are in Pride Month. So what does Pride mean? And how does one even feel that kind of celebration in a world that does not celebrate uh, for the most part, the LGBTQ plus community. And it is so always essential to not only fortify oneself, but to look at what community is and how uh, building that sense of, of self and that sense of community and belongingness actually is essential for a better world for everyone. So welcome, Gerard. Thank you, Sabrina. It's great to be here. Why don't you share with us who you are, how you identify both personally and with your work? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So Sabrina, I am, uh, this month I will turn 62 years old. So I'm a 62 year old, older adult, I guess, but I am a gay man. I'm queer. Um, and I am a psychotherapist currently who has worked directly and indirectly with trauma for all of my professional career, um, which started back in the 1980s, jumping into the AIDS epidemic uh, at the beginning and going to get my degree in social work in social work to be able to have some impact on the world that I was living in um, uh, and uh, experiencing my own uh, uh, worries about, about HIV and AIDS at the time. I guess I would say before then, just because we are in Pride Month, we're talking about what it is to live as a a gay person or a queer person. I grew up in a time when uh, you didn't talk about being gay. Uh, Stonewall hadn't happened, you know, when I was born. And in the 70s, when I was in high school, there really weren't any places you could point to where um, being gay was uh, okay or represented anywhere. So I, like a lot of people who are my contemporaries, uh, grew up sort of wondering if I was the only one. And then uh, eventually when I ran away to New York City, like so many other uh, gay people did, I think, um, uh, 
to discover who I might be. Uh, met some other gay folks, which is sort of the beginning of my story at Columbia um, and my sexual awakening, if you will, and my uh, sexual experience and, and, and experimentation through the 70s, which was uh, fun until it wasn't when AIDS uh, hit. What I would say about that and what drove me into the work was I was working in another industry and uh, fashion, actually, and folks started dying of AIDS who were fashion um, uh, designers. And uh, the industry's response was just buy fewer gay men designers. Let's go towards other people. It was not exactly embracing the way they did later on. So I ended up calling an organization called Gay Men's Health Crisis, which I was aware of, and said, what should I do to help? And the person who answered the phone ended up being my mentor, another licensed clinical social worker, Michael Chernoff. And he said, go back to social work school. So I went back to Columbia where I'd done undergrad work and uh, focused on HIV AIDS. That was my what I told them I wanted to do when I got there and did two uh, practicums over two years in AIDS programs and then launched into AIDS. Gerard, you're describing um, having grown up somewhere where you didn't even know if there were other queer gay people and knowing that you were yourself. In, uh, in New Windsor, New York, in Orange County, which is... Uh, a very nice place uh, to grow up when I did, but uh, far enough away from New York City that it was untouched by its, um, it was parochial by comparison. And then you said that you moved to New York City and you ended up being in the midst of what became the AIDS crisis. Can you locate that in terms of, are you talking about the mid 80s into the 90s or preceding Early that? 80s. Yeah, like I was at Columbia from 79 to 83, and uh, uh, I knew by the time, because I was hanging out with some uh, gay guys who were older, like their late 20s, by the time 1981 came along and the New York Times started reporting on early uh, uh, gay deaths, folks that I knew who were out in the world said, you know, uh, try not to do this behavior or be careful out there or, you know, whatever it was people were telling each other when we didn't know. Uh, exactly what was causing this. So I was aware and certainly took on AIDS anxiety right at the time that it was breaking in New York City in, in 1981. And then uh, before long, by the time I was in grad school, my partner at the time was diagnosed with AIDS. So by 1987, um, I was involved uh, uh, romantically and uh, spiritually and sexually with a man who had full-blown AIDS and we had two years together of him having AIDS and then died in 1989. So I uh, was already working full-time in AIDS by that point at a hospital. So I would work all day long with patients and then I would run over to the hospital and spend uh, you know, time with him until it was time to go home. Thank you, Gerard, for sharing yeah, that and what you're sure. describing. I was in New York City at that time as well. And uh, became very involved by by the mid to late 80s with queer activism and also at that same time made its bold and essential entrance into the world, which was ACT UP. And yeah. of course, those meetings being held at the Lesbian and Gay, as it was called at the time, yes. Community yeah, Center so on West 13th Street, that became a huge turning point. Yes. Yeah, same. Yeah, I was, you know, I was marching alongside of you. We didn't know each other at the time, right? But we were going to those meetings and we were going to actions. And 
that was the way one could feel some amount of support. In addition to the, you know, the wonderful folks I work with, the doctors and nurses and, and shrinks that I, I hung out with. But other than that, we were very much, you know, pariah even among the other parts of the medical, uh, you know, system, right? So going, being able to also rely on my queer family in ACT UP was uh, extremely helpful at the time. Right. And as you said, your queer family. So it really is about these ties for people that aren't necessarily getting that kind of affirmation from the world at large, certainly from the mainstream. And then, of course, personally from their families, perhaps, depending. You were immersed in this gay and queer community as a gay man and your own life with a beloved who had, as you described, full-blown AIDS, and then, of course, having gone back to Columbia University for your clinical psychotherapy research and to become a social worker and a psychotherapist. So this was your world at, at the time, and uh, you described yourself as being in your early 60s now. Mm-hmm. So how did you then move into the kind of psych- psychotherapies and support that you felt were the most effective? It really was a total of 25 years of working in HIV and AIDS between primarily happening in New York City. And then I took a seven-year hiatus in Sullivan County where I ran an AIDS program at, at the time it was called Community General Hospital. It's now called Catsco Regional Medical Center. And so I started that program and wrote all those grants and, and, and saw all those patients along with doctors and nurses in our, in our program. So yeah. And this is Sullivan County in the Catskills of New York, where I live, and and you also reside. Yes, that's right. Yes, where I have, where I'm fortunate enough to have an, a second home. I always did that, and um, uh, what I would say as well, since we're sort of talking about trauma, is that uh, we didn't think about trauma in the same way. We just knew we had to do what we needed to do to stay alive early on, and then we had to do what we needed to do to make sure people thrived once the medicine started to work in the you know second half of the 90s, right? When uh, protease inhibitors came along for people with HIV. So that was what we were focusing on. A lot of the early work therapy-wise was on you know, grief and mourning and uh, adjustment to illness and uh, being able to just uh, get through it and, and, and work with families and loved ones and frankly, a lot of legal advocacy as well, especially with gay men, to make sure that their families of origin or biological families didn't swoop in and, and uh, dump the lover out uh, in the cold, uh, which uh, happened more often than I'd like, like to say. So there was a lot of that type of thing early on. Later on, as I was doing um, more individual clinical work, psychotherapy work with folks that were HIV positive and surviving, and we're going to live a full life, there was a lot of work around shame or perhaps addictions that uh, they picked up along the way to cope with uh, the stress and thinking they'd never survive. So there was sort of that uh, post-acute AIDS era where people were like, oh, now I'm going to live. What now? So I, again, was doing a lot of uh, supportive psychotherapy, some addiction and, uh, and recovery work with folks. Uh, but yeah. Well, and to add to that, even that the guilt of survivor's guilt, which I know that many of my friends felt and and coping with that, even in, in a world, it, it's 
difficult to describe the difference then and now because we're also in the midst of a backlash now. Things are really troubled in so many ways at this moment. If we look across the country, if we look to Florida, if we look to the right wing, you know, kind of um, escalation and leadership, but at the same time, so much has changed and there in in many ways, there's more familiarity, awareness, acceptance, uh, kind of expression around gender and sexuality, you know, non-binary, uh, you know, advances. We're in a transition. Uh, you know, I started this saying about the survivor's guilt because that was something that came up so much in the midst of, you use the word grief. Trauma was not a word that I was hearing at that time and really until recently. And now it's a word that's being used so much. So I'd like to get into the definition from your perspective as a professional of trauma, but you use grief and there's a connection obviously between the two. And then there's PTSD. If we can somehow, I would love our listeners to be able to be introduced and for myself to learn from you what the intersections are, but yes. what the de- definitions are. As yes. Well. I, and I would say I didn't really learn the definitions until I stepped away from treating the AIDS community exclusively and, and instead stepped into working with a different community, which were uh, combat veterans coming back from the Iraq and Afghanistan war. So fast forward, I, I did exclusively AIDS work till 2010. I uh, moved from the hospital to the medical school in 2010, and I started working in the Department of Public Health, which had a variety of programs in it, including addiction programs, including a lot of research. So my colleague, Dr. Ann Beter, and I were, were asked by her family friend, a captain in the Marines named Zach Iskall. Zach came back to us after having fought in the Battle of Fallujah, and he lost a number of men and women in that uh, battle and came back and said, Anne Gerard, I need your help because I now have more veterans, more Marines are killing themselves now than we lost in battle. So suicide is now what's on the table. And we now need to please whatever it is, I will raise all the money you need. And I'll say that Zach is, Zach is currently the commissioner of emergency services under um, uh, uh, Mayor Adams. Uh, he ran for mayor, and he uh, comes from a very affluent New York family. Uh, went to Cornell, and then, but was called to serve, and 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 did that. He said, "I will raise the money that you need. You guys just figure out how to how to solve this problem." So we did, and we took a deep dive into uh, both PTSD, which is something that uh, you know a diagnosis that was sort of come about in uh, the in the. Uh, aftermath of another war of Vietnam. So the Vietnam veterans who were struggling with all of the symptoms of PTSD that most people are familiar with, intrusive thoughts, uh, nightmares, night terrors, uh, hyper alert, um, uh, you know, becoming sort of dissociated or, you know, flashbacks, uh, uh, those types of symptoms that often were in post-Vietnam, tre- uh, self-medicated with opiates and alcohol, et cetera, and has led, you know, led to a lot of uh, wrecked lives after those wars. It was, that was when there was just the right amount of, of interest in the military, in the psychiatric community, in uh, mental health in general, 
And then along, by the time the 90s came along and Judith Herman wrote her book, uh, Trauma and Recovery in 1994, another uh, Harvard uh, person, uh, we really started understanding uh, that uh, PTSD was its own thing, that trauma was its own thing. And trauma, my definition is uh, something extraordinary that happens to somebody that uh, you know is not easily just filed away and gotten over. And it's a somatic thing. So it's the body's natural response uh, or ordinary response to an extraordinary event. So uh, what happens is the traumatic event happens and, you know, it, we need to be clear, some people have traumatic events happen to them or things that would seem traumatic and they are uh, wired and or experience it in a way where they're able to metabolize, if you will, or uh, get through that event without any lasting impact. Uh, but many, many people do not for a variety of reasons. Either they are pre-wired to be more exquisitely sensitive to that type of a thing and having it stick around, or because the thing in and of itself is just so extraordinary, like somebody is shot and killed next to you, or you watch somebody die, or you survive a plane crash or whatever. So where does a personal history play into this or an accumulation of events with trauma, for instance? Uh, you know, because we are also now you're talking about combat veterans who you worked with for a number of years and you yes. use this EMDR technique, which we'll get into. But preceding that, you worked within the LGBTQ plus community uh, and you were talking about not only the the personal histories and and kind of where that meets uh, where that meets society uh, with discrimination and oppression. So I'm just, what are the layers of this? Yeah, no, it's it, it's just a great question, Sabrina, and it's really uh, what I get so excited about and what people, most people just don't have a good grasp on, which is that. You know, childhood experiences very much set ourselves up for how we are going to weather uh, adult experiences. And that is on the cellular level, the neurological level, the psychological level, all levels, and frankly, even intergenerational trauma. So what you come here with, whether it's the, your family history or in utero. Um, but to use the example of the combat veterans first, because that's what I learned first, um, the men and women that would come to see me who uh, did worse with regard to their PTSD symptoms were those who often were um, uh, had adverse childhood experiences that perhaps uh, brought them even seeking something like the military to as a way to uh, organize their life, let's say. So uh, folks uh, that had early uh, you know, abuse or neglect or, or, or sexual abuse or, or uh, folks that were uh, from uh, families that where they just uh, struggled and they sought out the military. That they didn't know, of course, nobody knew that they were going to be more vulnerable perhaps than others, but they in fact were. And um, so much of the trauma work that I've done with veterans, uh, you know, I would say 70 to 80 percent, maybe higher. Uh, they also had childhood work that we uh, ended up doing either before or we ended up bridging back to in doing the work. 
Well, I'm wondering for you, Gerard, I'm speaking with Gerard Ilaria, who is a psychotherapist, a, a licensed clinical social worker, and um, discussing his work with trauma and and with his clients. And, and right now you're talking about working with combat veterans. Uh, what was that like for you? I mean, this was not a world that you had been working with or probably a culture that you were that familiar with. Right. I mean, I'm a lefty, pacifist, anti-gun, uh, you know, I mean, all down the line, I don't see a reason for uh, lots of things, including uh, the way the military is structured. So not a big fan necessarily, though, uh, you know, uh, my father was a World War II veteran. He um, flew bombers over Germany uh and what I learned in the midst of doing my work and going back through his records was that he had PTSD. Um, he was uh, came back from the military in 1945 and was in a hospital for six months uh, in upstate New York, these sort of sanatoriums that you uh, heard a lot about, and uh, was diagnosed with uh, anxiety or, or nervous disorder or something like that, but, but it was uh, PTSD in 1945. So, so I have that I have that I have that uh, in my DNA. I have that in my history, though I didn't know it because he died when I was fifteen, and we never had a chance to talk about any of that. I only figured it out by going through his paperwork. And um, uh, but it all makes sense. Uh, and given what he saw and the things that I had heard he saw, it made uh, total sense to me as well. So 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 that being said, that is the same uh, situation with uh, queer people. If you have a history that is less than you having two 100% adoring uh, parents who you grew up in a loving culture that always embraced your whatever it is you wanted and and, it's, and you were encouraged to come out and threw a party, uh, et cetera, then perhaps, you know, and there was nothing else going on in the house, and then perhaps um, you won't have this situation. But since most of us know folks or ourselves um, grew up in a time where we were um, felt ashamed or uh, were rejected because of coming out or were bullied in school because other kids picked up on something that maybe we didn't pick up on or family didn't pick up on. All of that stuff uh, leads to a vulnerability that when something, for example, like AIDS comes along or uh, violence or uh, assault or uh, any number of things that can happen to uh, a gay adult, um, uh, one is more vulnerable and is likely to have uh, or develop PTSD um, uh, because they, in fact, had complex PTSD before that, just by growing up gay. And that's what I figured out. Uh, and that's why when I started working with veterans, I felt like I was coming home mm -hmm. because it was, I, I really just felt like I was working with the exact same group of people that I had always known during the AIDS uh, epidemic. These were young people who were marginalized, who were um, had experiences that nobody else could quite understand and who were suffering in silence in a way that made them feel very alone and very isolated. And, um, uh, and they uh, truly responded to, you know, being heard and, 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 you know, addressing these things through this, uh, your trauma therapies, including EMDR, which is something that I became expert at uh, after training. So I'm fascinated by what you just said, that in working with combat veterans uh, for a number of years and, and 
as a psychotherapist, uh, for those listening, uh, that you felt like you were coming home because your community identity and your professional work as a clinical social worker, psychotherapist was in the gay, queer, LGBTQ plus community. So that to me is really fascinating and actually very beautiful in terms of how we all can connect to each other and, uh, and how important that is. And I'm wondering if you can introduce us to a technique you have been using, which we're going to continue in another episode. We're going to dive deeply into what EMDR is. Gerard, can you share with us what that is? Yes, happy to. So it uh, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is a terrible name. Uh, and Francine Shapiro, who it is, the, is, it's a terrible, it is a terrible name. name. And when Francine Shapiro coined that name in 1989, when she first sort of came across this uh, quite by accident, she thought uh, later, boy, if I could have rebranded. But anyway, the, the basic idea is that uh, Francine was somebody who was dealing with cancer. She was in California. She was walking across the campus. And she noticed that as she was thinking about her um, troubles, she was moving her eyes to the left and to the right in a repeated sort of uh, back and forth motion. And in doing that, she started to feel some relief over some of her own worries. And she thought, what is this? And she then uh, started working with some grad students, uh, experimenting with this phenomenon of uh, back and forth eye movements, not knowing what it was, and then went on to start uh, coming up with clinical trials involving uh, Vietnam veterans, uh, uh, survivors of domestic abuse, uh, 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 people with addiction, et cetera, and figured out this uh, phenomenon, which is an eight-phase treatment called the EMDR that I can tell you more about uh, you know, and elaborate on. But it's phenomenal. It's a power tool. It works extremely well in desensitizing folks to troubling traumatic memories and changing the way they see the world and feeling way better. Thank you, Gerard. I'm happy that we're going to continue this conversation in another episode. And we're going to really dive more deeply into this and your mission with it and, and also beyond uh, with, with the LGBTQ plus community taking, taking what you have learned uh, as a psychotherapist and why working now back again in the queer community has become really a, a calling for you, your your mission. I have been speaking with Gerard Ilaria, who is a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist. He is uh, working at the Cornell University, the Weill Medical College there at Cornell University. And uh, to find out more about Gerard and the work that he has been discussing, please go to traumacenternyc.org. You can visit www.traumacenternyc.org. Thank you, Gerard. You're welcome. What a pleasure. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill 
and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.